910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back and Happy New Year. Chris, I'm going to start off giving you a little New Year's quiz. Can you name the top three most common New Year's resolutions? I'm going to say losing weight. I'm going to say not cussing so much and um, not drinking so much. Okay. I don't know if that's from personal experience or if you're just... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, you got one right. The top three are exercise more. That's number one. Lose weight is number two. And get organized is number three. Notice that there's a theme in all of these. People want change. They want change in their health, change in their weight, or change in their surroundings. Change is the same reason all of those home renovation shows on TV are so popular. You know, people love seeing a disorderly, dated, or maybe completely trashed house transformed into a beautiful home that anyone would be proud to show. You know, Rose, sometimes change is good, but... You know, one thing in common with all the things that you mentioned is that they all require continual work. Exercising once or twice isn't going to make you healthier, and it's not going to make you lose weight either. I can (laughs) I can attest to that. Losing ten pounds and then going back to your old eating habits will quickly make you put the weight right back on, and maybe even more. And you can spend days and days organizing your house or your office. But if you don't stay on top of it when you're done, it will be a cluttered mess, but again, in no time at all. Even beautiful house renovations can quickly turn bad if you don't maintain the things in your home or if you mistreat them. If you mistreat your furniture or your appliances or your floors, they're going to be a mess again. That's right. And funny story, I used to own DVDs of every kind of exercise you could possibly know. Pilates, hip hop, I even had belly dancing. And my daughter would say to me, mom, just owning the DVDs doesn't help. (laughs) Good advice. So the moral of the story is that while initial change can be wonderful, true transformation only comes with hard work and consistency. And I'm sure everyone's probably figured out where we're going with this. For those of us who have been saved, our salvation brought an initial change in us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. You could say that at our salvation, God fulfilled for us all three of the top resolutions. We've lost the weight of unforgiven sin. We've been brought to life by the Holy Spirit, and that definitely qualifies as getting healthier. And our lives are more organized because we now have a manual to look for for anything that we need to know. But if we don't put the work in and cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, we can easily forget what having our sin forgiven costs Jesus and take future sin too lightly. While we won't lose our salvation without making consistent effort We could neglect pursuing a godly lifestyle, which is definitely unhealthy, emotionally and spiritually and bodily too, it can be. And the Bible is only an effective manual to life if we actually read it and understand it. 
And since we're being so clever, linking the secular transformations to the spiritual, think of it this way. You know, we're all that rundown, dilapidated house. But when God got a hold of us, he turned us into a beautifully remodeled home. But if we don't keep up on the maintenance, the house can start to have some cracks. So all this to say that our continual spiritual transformation is crucial to our sanctification and our walk with Jesus. Okay, so let's look at the other side of this. You know, Chris, when I was a teenager, I loved watching Julius Irving play basketball. I used to watch the Philadelphia 76ers play every night. Dr. J, as he's known, had this move called the finger roll. If you've ever seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. I'll try to describe it. It looked like he glided towards the basket, flew in the air, and had the basketball roll down his hand to the tip of his finger and just swoosh in the net. I mean, it was really a thing of beauty. And he made it look so easy. And that's what premier athletes do. And they make what they do look easy. But if you ask them, it's anything but easy. We see the net result. But what we don't see is the hours and days, weeks, months, and years of training that it took to get them to the place where they make it look as good as what they do. They make it look easy. But you know, Rose, it can be the same, even with great theologians. Calvin, Spurgeon, Edwards, even some current ones like R.C. Sproul, Bodie Bauckham, and others. The way that the brilliant biblical truths just roll off their tongues, we might tend to think that they've received a special gift from the Holy Spirit that the rest of us haven't. And to be fair, while there's no doubt that they've been gifted by the Holy Spirit with intellect and the ability to effectively communicate, you know what? They all started at the same place we did. They didn't just wake up one day and were brilliant. They, like premier athletes, put hours, days, weeks, and months, and years of work in. And I'll give you an example of a story that Dr. R.C. Sprawl tells. After he graduated from seminary, he was done with school. He said he was tired of school. He had a wife and a baby. They were really poor from his going to seminary. And he just wanted to get a pastor's job somewhere, serve God, and provide for his family. But his advisor at the seminary told him he needed to go to Amsterdam to study with Dr. G.C. Berkauer, who was a renowned theologian. He's dead now, but he was a renowned theologian, and he was the chair of systematic theology at the Free University in Amsterdam. His advisor happened to personally know him, and he thought R.C. would greatly benefit from doing his postgraduate work there. The advisor talked R.C. into it, and he packed up his little family and moved them into a tiny apartment in Amsterdam. He went to meet with Dr. Burkauer, only to be given a stack of books that he was told to read and study and be ready to discuss. The problem was that all of the books were in Dutch and French, and Dutch was the language that Dr. Burkauer taught in, something R.C.'s advisor never told him. R.C. didn't speak a word of Dutch or French. So what did he do? He sat at his little metal kitchen table 14 hours every day with his books, with a Dutch, English, and a French, English dictionary. He would take a page at a time going through and looking up each and every word and writing it on another paper. And he did this for every single book. Now, how's that <laughs> for putting in work? Yeah, that's work. You know, he finishes his story by saying that the education he got under Dr. Burkhauer has benefited him his whole life. 
Plus, he became fluent in Dutch and French. You know, the point is not that we all need to spend 14 hours a day studying theology books in foreign languages, but we should be grateful that there's some who are willing to do that. But the point is that to get any substantial results in anything, we have to be willing to put work in. That's why we decided to start off the year with a series called Be Transformed, so we can all begin the work of looking deeply at some truly transforming biblical truths so that we can be transformed. And spoiler alert, we've made a preliminary topic list, and there may be some that are going to cause an ouchie for some of us. And that's not unusual for us, Rose. (laughs) But cooperating with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification means that we are actively seeking to be transformed by studying biblical truth and biblical doctrine. It's where we need to begin. It's where we need to continue and end. As Paul tells us in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's exactly why that Romans 12, 2 verse is the theme of this whole series. If nothing else, you'll know the verse by heart. We're going to start this week with an overview and answer some questions like, how are we transformed? Why does Jesus divide his people from the rest of the world? How do we cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Why does who we're closest to matter in our transformation? Why does what we put in our minds and how we spend our time matter in our transformation? Next week, we're going to start delving into specific truths, but this week we're going to kind of do an overview. So let's get started with the first question. How are we transformed? And I'll add, why do we need to be transformed? You know, we don't have to study scripture or even actively pursue our sanctification to be saved. They're two separate issues. Once saved, always saved. Even if you never crack open your Bible, you'll still be saved if you're truly saved. However, however, for those who are truly saved, there should be a hunger to get to know the God who saved you. And truly understanding your salvation, all that it costs, and what's now expected of you now that you're a child of God is exactly what matures you as a Christian. It's what keeps us from being rocked when a crisis arises. It's what keeps us from being misled by false teachers. It's what makes us able to witness an accurate and complete gospel message to others. And It's what makes us more and more resemble Jesus, which is the very goal of our sanctification. That's right. And while we don't need it to be saved, if someone has no desire to grow at all, no desire to know what God says to them in his word, no desire to serve God, no desire to get to know God more intimately, you know, that person really needs to examine if they are truly saved because those desires are the fruits of salvation. And, you know, Chris, as with everything, the first day is always the hardest. You know, we've all had the aches and pains after we start exercising for the first time in a long time. You know, I'm sure Dr. Sproul, that first day of translating, looked at those mountain of books before him and felt really intimidated. But he just kept going. He just kept digging in. And that's what we need to do. We just need to do it. And that leads really nicely into the next question of, Why does Jesus divide his people from the rest of the world? Well, we can start answering that by going back to Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind 
so that you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The prefix con means with. So conformed means formed with. When Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, he's saying to not be formed by this world. Do not accept its values as your values, its standards as your standards, its morals as your morals. Instead, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The prefix trans means change. Transformed means formed by change. As we read earlier in the Colossians verse, when we are saved, God makes us a new or changed creation. It's in this change that we're to be formed. And that means we're to be formed by God's word. God's values become our values. God's standards become our standards. And God's morals become our morals. And the only way to effectively do that and avoid idol worship, meaning that we're looking to something else other than God as our God, or syncretism, which is blending the world's values, standards, and morals with God's, is for God's people to be separate. Chris, we've talked about this a lot in the last few episodes, but from Genesis to Revelation, God makes a distinct divide between his people and those who are not his people. This is called the doctrine of separation. It begins in Genesis 4.4, which says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, obviously we don't have time to fully exposit this passage, but basically both Cain and Abel bought an offering to God. God accepted Abel's, but not Cain's. You know, there's debate about whether it's because Abel's was a better offering, but it's not about the offering. It's about the heart condition of the two men. As Romans 8, 28 to 30 tells us, and he is going to transform his chosen people through the work of the Holy Spirit into God-honoring, God-glorifying people. And we see that this is not what God did with Cain by his response to God confronting him about his anger. When God confronts Cain about his anger, the Lord tells Cain, if he does well, he will be acceptable, but warns him about the sin forming in his mind. If you had God himself telling you, look, do what's right in my eyes and you will be acceptable, wouldn't you do it? If you think. But Cain doesn't. In fact, the Old Testament is full of people who didn't. Instead, in this case, Cain kills his brother. And that was really stupid because killing Abel in no way helped his situation out. No. And Chris, you bring up a good point. Why didn't Cain or the Israelites throughout the Old Testament just do what God told them? Well, Paul gives us the very graphic reason why, and it's in Romans 3, 10 to 18, and I'm going to read it. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This was every single one of us before God got a hold of us and the Holy Spirit regenerated our hearts, making us a new creation. Absolutely. We talked about in the episode on parables how Jesus obscured secrets of the kingdom of God from unbelievers because they are enemies of God. 
and are going to be privileged to the secrets of the kingdom. The separation of God's people from those that aren't is the same concept. Why would God want his people immersed with his enemies, being influenced by his enemies, being coerced by his enemies, being corrupted by his enemies? And we see this in that Genesis passage. God sends Cain away. Adam and Eve have Seth, who is of the godly line. Throughout Genesis, Moses goes back and forth between the godly line and the ungodly line, showing the distinct differences and the vast divide between the two. And this continues. It's exactly why God instructed Joshua to completely annihilate or completely drive out the pagan inhabitants of the promised land. God didn't want his people mixing with his enemies because he knows the danger that puts his people in. And they're in danger from all the reasons we've already said, being corrupted, being coerced, being influenced. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You know, Chris, we only need to see the spiritual downfall of so many churches who've forsaken solid biblical truth for moral relativism. And in case you aren't familiar with that term, what it basically means is there's no absolutes. Well, actually, there's one absolute. And the only absolute is that there's no absolutes. There's no absolute truth. Truth is relative to each person. My truth might be different than your truth because of our different life experiences. But here's what moral relativism really is. It's really just a license to sin. It is. And that's the exact reason that we're to be separate from those in the world. Like we said, the divide continues through all 66 books. We'll give a quick New Testament example. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And of course, the entire theme of the book of Revelation is just Jesus bringing to completion his victory over Satan, sin, and death for his people, and God the Father bringing to completion his judgment on those who aren't his people. Now, we all know that complete division is impossible, not to mention that we're called to interact with unbelievers so we can witness them. After all, we have no idea whose heart the Holy Spirit is regenerating at any given moment. So when we're called to be separate, it doesn't mean we live like the Amish, shutting out the rest of the world. That's not only impractical, it's against scripture too. Since Jesus tells us to go and preach the gospel to all nations and people. So how do we stay separate yet not be separate? The answer is that we stay spiritually and mentally separate from the world while remaining physically connected to the world. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. And the more we are transformed by renewing our mind, the easier it will be to do. Okay, so let's answer the question, how do we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in being transformed? Well, we already started answering this. Just like salvation, God is sovereign over the sanctification. However, we still have free will. Arminians think Reformed people don't believe in free will, but that's not true. We will probably look at this in depth in an upcoming episode, but you can believe in God's sovereignty and free will. No one's holding a gun to your head to make you do something. You're making decisions and choices freely. 
You have to be because you don't know God's plan. That's right. So while the Holy Spirit is sovereign over your sanctification, you are making the decisions to open your Bible and read and study. You are making the decision to strive to put everything you believe up against scripture. And if there's a contradiction, you're making a decision to change your thinking. And that's exactly how we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. You know, we don't need to know how all this works, sovereignty and free will. God doesn't expect us to know how it works. We just need to know what our responsibility is and do it. Let God do the rest. And the last two questions we posed at the beginning fall into this part about our responsibility. The first one we'll take. Why does who we're closest to matter in our transformation? First, understand that we're saying why it does matter who we're closest to. We aren't saying you shouldn't mix with your neighbors, coworkers, families, even friends who aren't Christian. It does matter, though, that those you're closest to, your confidants, your intimate friends are Christian. And we're going to go back to Paul's verse in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 for this reason. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteous with lawlessness or fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What Paul means here is that for the Christian, Jesus Christ and God's word are the supreme authorities in our life, while it's foolishness for the unbeliever. Simple logical tell you that it is not a good idea to be in a close relationship with someone who thinks the single most important thing in your life is foolishness. And again, this goes back to the possibility of the believer being influenced, coerced, or corrupted by the unbeliever. That's why who you are closest to matters. You don't want to be asking advice on important matters from someone whose entire worldview clashes with yours. Again, be friendly with unbelievers for sure. Show them the love of Christ whenever you can. Establish a relationship of sorts where they know you genuinely care about them and they trust you so that you can effectively witness to them. As Augustine said, those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow. Yep. And from a practical standpoint, Chris, you and I are more than just partners in our ministry. We're very close friends. We tell each other things we wouldn't tell anyone else except our husbands. We study scripture together. We challenge each other. We even at times push each other. And, you know, the beauty of our relationship is that even if I don't like what you may tell me at times, because I know where it's coming from, from a place of Christian wisdom and love, I listen. And I take it to heart. I step back and I rethink my position or the situation or whatever we're talking about. And usually I find that your advice or insight is exactly what I needed. And that's how I feel. And that's how it's supposed to work, Rose. You know, God never tells us our sanctification and being transformed is a solo mission. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 reiterates that very thing. 
It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And let me throw in here that we've all seen corruption in the world and in some churches escalate dramatically just in the last few years. That trend's not going to stop. In fact, according to the book of Revelation, the closer we get to Jesus' second coming, the more it's going to intensify. As believers, we need each other. We need to lean on each other. We need to support each other and we need to encourage each other. That's exactly what the writer of that Hebrews verse is saying. That's why pastors fought back against the mandate prohibiting them from meeting in their church. They saw the danger of not meeting far outweighed any consequence that they would pay for disobeying the law. It's why there are underground churches all over the world where Christianity is forbidden. It's why people put their life on the line to smuggle Bibles to people and disciple people when the government punishes those acts with death or imprisonment in a labor camp. That's exactly right, Chris. You know, before we move on to the last question, we should say something about spouses where one is a believer and the other isn't, because I think it needs to be talked about. If you're a Christian and you're not yet married, listen to Paul's words, which are God's words, and add being a Christian as a priority on your list for qualities in a potential husband or wife. It'll save a lot of heartache and a lot of possible trouble for all the same reasons why being an intimate friend with an unbeliever is a bad idea. Put it but, at the top of your list. Yes. Good. Put it at the top of your, well, it's probably equal with of the other gender. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're but right. Definitely in the top two. Put those two at the top of your list. That's right. Don't neglect either one. No, that don't neglect either. They're both equally important. However, if you're already married and you find yourself in the situation where one of you is a believer and one isn't, Paul has advice for you too. It's in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16. He says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? And, you know, Chris, I'm going to confess here that this was the case with my husband and me. I was not a believer, and he was. He married me anyway. He shouldn't have, but he did. And as you can see, God was gracious and it worked out. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up. But don't do it if you're not married. <laughs> yeah, if you're not married. The same with business partners. Yeah, you're right. You, can, you can't work that closely with somebody that has a totally different worldview. Because at some true. point you're going to come to a standpoint where you're not going to agree. Yep. Okay, on to the last question. Why does what we put in our minds and how we spend our time matter in our transformation? Well, this is going to be a tough answer for some of us, but Paul addresses this very thing in Ephesians chapter four. It's even captioned the new life. 
He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I'll finish up starting at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul's giving us directives on how we're to behave, not on what we watch or how we spend our time. However, there's definitely a correlation between the two. When an alcoholic decides to get sober, the very first thing he or she is told is to get rid of all the alcohol in the house and stay away from the bars or situations where drinking is going to be prevalent. That's because a newly sober alcoholic is still weak and easily led into temptation, so they need to stay away from all temptation whenever possible. And the same is true for us. When we're saved, we're no longer an unbeliever. That's what Paul means by the term Gentile. Just like the condition of sobriety for an alcoholic is to not drink, our condition for being a new creation is to not behave like an unbeliever or how we used to behave before we were saved. We can't expect unbelievers to care about God's word, and obviously they don't. You need only to turn on the TV to see them mocking God by completely emasculating men, flaunting homosexuality, treating gender change and gender mutilation as a badge of courage, devaluing the family, devaluing babies, devaluing parenting our children, making putting our own wants and desires before all else and obtaining them at any cost. And we could go on and on and on. And one I'll just add is the constant, instead of using God, they say the universe, you know, throwing it out to the universe makes me crazy. But Chris, in all honesty, we should expect nothing less. You know, it's definitely getting worse and it is pretty disgusting to see simple morals being tossed aside. And that is definitely getting worse, but we shouldn't expect any different. But that's not who we're to be. And just like being immersed in the world can influence and corrupt us, what we put in our minds or how we spend our time can do the same. You know, have you ever watched a movie where they cursed a lot, maybe said the F word a lot. 
And for a short time after watching that movie, it's in your head and you find yourself thinking it. You know, imagine if you constantly watched movies and shows like that. It would definitely get to you and probably cause your own language to degenerate. And constantly watching shows where transgenderism, homosexual relationships, and things like that, cheating on spouses, where that stuff is the norm and it's even celebrated, you know, especially if you're a new Christian, it's going to definitely affect your thinking on the subject and it's going to corrupt you. Being around or constantly watching things like crudeness and anger can be toxic to us. You know, Chris, you and I have both been in a situation where we got to turn the news off because the anger and stuff just is toxic. It is. Paul is warning us about being careful how we spend our time and what we put in our minds, i.e. what we watch on TV. And obviously, the more mature we become as a Christian, the less these things affect us. But it's also true that the more mature we become as a Christian, the less we should want to be around or watch this stuff. And that's a good thing. Exactly. So let's wrap up this episode on being transformed with a quote from Dr. R.C. Sproul. After all, the work he put in, he deserves to be quoted. (laughs) He said, it is not enough to read your Bible. We need to study it. Real devotionals include studying and being devoted to what you're reading. If we want to be transformed, we have to think like God. As a man thinks, there he goes. The way your life is transformed is to have your mind transformed. We have to be trained by the word of God. It's not about tickling our intellect. It's about truly wanting to be transformed. Whatever is good, whatever is lovely. And that's a great place to end for today. We hope you're going to continue to join us on this journey to be transformed. Have a blessed day, everyone. 